0: okay turn to uh, 1 kings 12 to start off just a, f- a favorite passage of mine i think it's very illustrative there's other places to turn with the same idea but it's so well summed up here and i thought of this last week and wasn't prepared to turn right to the exact chapter and verse so i just let the thought go but we we're talking about at the beginning of our chapter, as we've been looking at the events, we're comparing Peter, who's betrayed Jesus, Judas, Judas who's be- betrayed Jesus. But there's significantly different things there. One is a, you know, a path to despair and destruction, and the other is a path to, to, to repentance and and um, and fruitfulness. But you couldn't tell the difference at the time. They're just both faithless betrayals. And we talked a little bit about Judas. I think it was Tim last week said, you know, couldn't have done any differently. This is God's sovereignty, which is absolutely so. Look at 1 Kings. This is, is, um, and if if you you can read the account more broadly uh, about Rehoboam um, inheriting the throne of Israel from Solomon, and um, men come to him and say, Lighten the load that your father father placed on us. And Rehoboam goes to the old men and asks their advice, and they say, yeah, you should listen to the people. Lighten the load, and they will serve you forever. And it says Rehoboam did not listen to the counsel of the old men. He turned to his friends, to his young friends with whom he had grown up, and he listened to them who said, make your little fingers Uh, As thick as your father's waist, you know, a euphemism for, you know, make it harder. Crack down on these people. And that's the advice Rehoboam took. Um, It was unwise. Um, Whether it was explicitly sinful, we could have a whole discussion about I think it was, but it was certainly unwise. And here's what the scripture says as it comments upon his choice after he announces this to the people. Verse 15 of 1 Kings 12, it says, So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And Jeroboam, of course, became the first king of the northern portion of the divided kingdom. The whole story in in itself whole different study but just think here think what's going on here nobody made Jeroboam be unwise I'm sorry Rehoboam be unwise nobody forced him God's providence didn't um, render him choiceless he had a clear choice he chose wrongly and unwisely and he was culpable for that choice It's, it's very clear uh, as, as the narrative goes on, that Rehoboam does not uh, wholeheartedly follow the Lord, to say the least. Um, he is culpable. We make, in history, in time, real choices. And yet, a turn of events was from the Lord because the Lord had something specific in mind that was a consequence of Solomon's sin. Actually, if you, if, you, if you read the larger context, I don't, you know without going into all that, but it's just this mysterious thing we've got to contend with in our lives. You know We are not ever to think. History, destiny is, in, is it in our hands alone. We are independently making our own choices. God is working all things for His glory and for the good of His people, all things. And yet, at the same time, we're not to like seize that truth of God's sovereignty and excuse ourselves. Well, I couldn't couldn't help sinning; it was God's plan. No, we're not allowed to do that. I can't look at my children and say, "Well, you know, if they're going to, I don't really need to teach or raise or or encourage my children to follow Christ." Yeah, you know, they're in God's hands. If, they, you know, if they're going to come to the Lord, it's just up to Him. No it's true but at the same time god's providence god's sovereignty operates through means he's sovereign over every step of the path as one step leads to another not just over the big ends of history and so just something to contend with as as we can consider not only judas but just how we live you know, how we operate, we are responsible to make wise and godly choices. And there are consequences for making good consequences for making wise and godly choices. And there's poor consequences for making choices badly. And yet every bit of it is in God's hands and, and in his control. Um, so, um, we under you know we see Judas destroying himself. And then we come to Pilate. Pilate tries to wash his hands of the whole thing. No, Pilate, you can't. You don't get to do that. You are you've assumed a position, you have a responsibility. What you do has consequences. What you fail to do has consequences. Yes, it's all in God's hands. His wife is trying to warn him. I have nothing to do with this. And he's kind of listening, but not really. He didn't, he didn't do what ought to have been done, which is to say to the Jewish council, this is trumped up foolishness. I'm not killing this person. And Pilate should have done that whether or not he was a believer in Jesus. That was just the simple, obvious, material truth of the matter. He wasn't guilty of anything worthy of death. And yet he's, ah, i got to keep peace. i got this job to do. The Romans want me to not have, you know, riots in Jerusalem. I'd just better take what seems to be the path of of uh the best outcome for Rome, and I try to wash my hands of it, but you can't wash your hands of of what of what the Lord brings into your path and how you make use or fail to make use of it um, and there's that whole instance you know that whole episode of you know how Pilate handles it kind of tries to release Jesus but ends up releasing Barabbas because he bows to the will of the people um, and uh, it, it's kind of summed up in verse 24 of the chapter when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all but rather that a tumult was rising he took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying I am innocent of the blood of this just person you see to it um, go ahead, Newton. Uh, uh, where are you? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Matthew 27. The account of of Christ. Yeah, 27. Matthew 27. Matthew's account of Christ's crucifixion. Have I, if I failed to say that? I thought, well, you went to first Kings first. So. Okay, yeah, I did go to First Kings first, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, we're in... And, you know... We have this whole dynamic, you know, the, the Jewish council is, I think there's there's really good evidence that we're going to run across, hopefully today if we get to it, that the Jewish council is not only wanting Jesus dead, but there's an explicit um, self-incriminating piece of the narrative which says they knew, you know, the Jewish council you know, would like to think of themselves as righteous and killing this rabble-rouser who's disturbing the peace and making... Um, inappropriate claims of divinity, but there's there's a you, you'll see in the in the in the narrative there's a, a very a self-incriminating ending to it, which gives the lie to some of the things that they are saying. We'll get to that. Um, the soldiers are mocking him. Pilate delivers him to the soldiers. They mock him. I think that's where we left off last week. So uh, where we will start reading. Is uh, let, let's start with verse 26 of Matthew 27, and uh, we'll not read to the end of the chapter. Um, we'll read through verse 38, I think, and and pause there. Verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them um, when he had scourged Jesus. He delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now remember, pause there for a second, remember this. This isn't just an incidental phrase. They probably said a lot of things that were mocking. But this is recorded because this is the gospel, which is all about the theme that runs from beginning to end, is Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king of the kings. He's the king of his people. He's the king of Israel. And this is being emphasized here among the insults. because you know, it's reemphasizing the theme of the, of the book. Then they spat on him, in verse 30, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled Bear his cross. Um, Cyrene is is uh, in the general area of Libya. Um, historians seem to agree. So, not a whole lot said about Simon of Cyrene, but he but he's noted by name um, three times in the Gospels. Um, this is a, a, a notable event. There's a lot of tradition about who Simon was as a follower of. Of Christ, but uh, it's just interesting. Here's this man, African, in the city, probably for the Passover. Here, carry his cross. Um, Verse 33 And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And, of course, we hear... Um, Elsewhere in the Gospels, you know, the, the Jews, don't say that. Say he claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate said, nah, don't bother me. I've written what I've written. And in God's sovereign plan, that's, that's the, the title over Jesus' head as he is crucified. He is the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And in three of the Gospels, I'm sorry, two of the Gospels, which record that, uh, there's no other um, commentary on the two robbers, but we find out from Mark, I'm sorry, from Luke chapter 23, that one of those robbers repented. Apparently, they both started out nasty and reviling, and you know, cursing at Jesus because uh, that's recorded in Mark, but um, in Luke, it's, it's apparently that the point came where this man, facing his in, his impending death, said, "Listen, I'm guilty. He's innocent. Leave him alone. Remember me when you come into your kingdom." And Jesus says, "This day you will be with me in paradise." Um, so there's a divide here. One and one. Um, they both start out hostile, and one ends in Jesus's presence, in comfort, and in and in glory. It's a just an incredible picture. You know, very briefly commented upon, not spelled out in all the gospels. But just just think of that. You know. In, a, in the space of the hours of them being crucified. One went from hostile and cursing to remember me when you come into your kingdom. And there he is. We can, you know, if we are his, we expect to, to be with him. It's, it's an incredible picture. Uh, go ahead, Ray. You can't miss the sovereign grace there. All right. I mean, they both saw the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why one? Right. Or, you know, why, why this one, not this one? <laughs> grace? You know, yeah. I mean. it, it's, it's a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty. Yeah. Electing grace. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard this phrase used. You've, uh, probably a lot of pe- people have heard it. You know, there's two thieves. One repents, so that no one might despair, and only one, so that no one may presume oh, well, you die. It's just going to be okay. There's a, I think who I think it was John Paul Sartre, Sartre was uh, Sartre. I'm French pronunciation. John Paul Sartre was asked on his death deathbed. I think I have the right philosopher. Um, you know, what if they, what if you're wrong? Because you know, he was you know very much sort of an existential thinker and didn't live for for the Lord. Certainly didn't even live for any concept of eternity. What, what if you, you know, what what if there really is a heaven and a hell, and there really is a God? And he said, "Well, if God will forgive me. That's His job." And I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of people think, that think that way. Eh, you know, God's up there. We live our lives. If I need forgiveness, He'll take care of it. I don't I don't need to worry too much about it. He's just way up there. Uh, the Bible says what it says, so that we might be instructed. God is not um, to be taken for granted. And yeah, his grace intervenes here in just a marvelous way, and yet only one of the two. Um, Any other comments before we go on? Um, Psalm 22 is quoted in verse 35. They divided my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. I think, you know, we're. I think most of us. I look around. I know us well enough to know that you're cognizant of Psalm 22. I'm tempted to you know, divert and just read the psalm. You know, hundreds of years before the psalmist is writing the thoughts of Jesus' heart and telling the events. In the first person, by the way, I think it's really significant about Psalm 22, um, verse 39. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Pause. Just just pause for a second at that verse. Can you blaspheme somebody who isn't God? Just you know, there's there's no. Perfect claims spelled out, but can you, you can't blaspheme. By definition, what blasphemy is is a slander against the true God. You can insult someone who's not God, but the, you know, the, the writer chose the word blaspheme. There's a mark of claim for Jesus' divinity. You can't blaspheme anyone but God. thought here is God in the flesh suffering in agony for the the sake of his people Um, and here's what they said verse 40 and saying you who destroy the temple and build it in three days save yourself if you are the son of God come down from the cross Um, look back for a second to chapter 26 and verse 61, um, where part of the testimony condemning Jesus is false witnesses coming and saying, in verse 61 of chapter 26, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And then here's the, the crowd, you know, parroting that accusation. You know, this, is, this is a cornerstone accusation in the case against jesus he's he's a ramble rouser who's making incredible claims but he's a threat he'll he's trying to destroy the temple and he has delusions of grandeur that he can build this temple in three days and here's the, that was part of the accusation here's the crowd re-saying that accusation i, I bring that up for a for a point for a reason it will come up later Uh, Verse 41, likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. Really, first of all, I think if Jesus had come down from the cross, they still wouldn't believe him. But that's a moot point. I think the, the the telling thing there is is what are they doing? They're setting up their own criteria. I will be the judge of of God, of this man claiming to be God. I will not seek the truth and allow God to judge. I will set up my own criteria. Do you see the first of all the logical flaw in that? And there's a moral element to that logical flaw. Um. C.S. Lewis had, you know, has a famous um, essay entitled "God in the Dock," and without you know quote, quoting it at length, his basic point is that the way people act in modern in the modern age is: now eh, we present this gospel, and then people, you know, do I believe this or do I not believe it? And you take God's sovereignty, take the, uh, the Holy Spirit's work out of it, and that's what you have: you have human decisions, and his criticism is that sometimes people make a you know a kind and generous decision they just they decide oh you know i i i get this i i'll believe i'll believe in this jesus and he says but the important thing if you're familiar with the with the the figure of the dock in a courtroom the important thing is that the individual is on the judge's seat and god is at the bar or in the dock being judged. Do you, do you see the logic there? If, if if we present the gospel as nothing but a human, you know, some claims that humans decide whether whether they're true or not, now we do decide we're culpable for our decisions. But if it's nothing but that, what we're basically doing is saying, you be the judge, and we'll present the claims of God, and you may judge God. These claims of truth, and, 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 and you know, C.S. Lewis says there's something dreadfully wrong with that picture. Because and C.S. Lewis was no Calvinist, but he understood enough to know that um, you can't take the hand of God and His Holy Spirit and His intervention into the hearts of men. You can't take that out of the picture without turning the whole scheme of what of who God is as the King of the Kings. You you can't do that, because then what you're doing is elevating man and making him the judge of the things of God. And that's that's exactly what's going on here. Here's the the Jews, the council, you know, we'll be the judge. If you can satisfy my idea of what God ought to look like, then we'll believe in you. I'll decide the criteria. You jump through the hoop for me, Jesus. And if you do, then I'll believe you. That's incredibly similar to a lot of modern theology, how the gospel is presented. Try Jesus, yeah. Give him a try. Yeah. Might, it might work out. It might come down the cross. Yeah, you you decide. Yeah. He is... figure of history before before whom everything else everyone else should just be in awe and reverence at his feet and that, that's not to say that we don't have a, a capacity to, to, to think about truth to make decisions but it's not that's not the final thing um, like Oh, we, okay. Yeah, we just read through verse 42. Verse 43 He trusted in God. Let him deliver him. Now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Oh, if you're really the Son of God, surely God won't let this happen to you. Uh, there's another marked similarity with modern understanding. You know, if there's a God, he wouldn't, he wouldn't let me endure hardship. He wouldn't. He wouldn't make demands on me and and, uh, tell me that my life is something to be consumed for his glory and that that's what's the best thing for me. God wouldn't do that to me. Yeah, that's exactly what he does. That's what it means for him to be God and us to be creatures. Uh, We are for him. We exist for his glory. Um. Even the robbers, and here's where it, you know, it doesn't distinguish here in the Matthew passage, it says even the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Um, now pause for a second. You know, he, he, you know, Peter's denial, Judas' denial, Pilate's um, ambivalent failure to do what is right, uh, his wife is dreaming things which I don't even understand, uh, how that is you know, to be understood. The Jews are reviling him, the soldiers are mocking him, the thieves are reviling him. What's, what's Jesus' response through the whole thing? We're not you know, having it spelled out when he's hanging on the cross, but what's his what's his response that we see in the trial and, and it just continues? 1 Peter chapter 2. When he reviled, well, I'm sorry, when he was reviled. He reviled not again. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges justly. I'll put myself in Jesus, in, in the Father's care, regardless of how it ends, regardless of where it leads me, because in the larger scheme of things, in the eternal scheme of things, that is the only place where peace and safety and blessing can be found and... Jesus will not defend himself. He is silent in terms of self-defense. He's not utterly silent. We've already talked a little bit about that last week when it says he was silent before Pilate. It doesn't mean he didn't speak a single word. It means in in regards to self-defense, it's do what you want. You, you You know what these people are claiming? You know what I've said? If you paid any attention at all to the last three years? I'm not defending myself. And Pilate marveled at that. Remember, we talked about this Roman soldier who, you know, should have culturally had all sorts of familiarity with the idea of dying well for your country. He's looking at Jesus and he thinks, but you're not, I don't see what you're dying for. Why are you you able to sit there and just accept your fate and not even plead or make any defense? What's up? Pilate marvels at that. Jesus knows what he's doing, and, he, and it says in first, first Peter, not only is he doing that as the Savior, but that's the example he is setting a, a paradigm for Christians. It, it says in, in the First Peter passage. I'm not turning there. I'm just I'm familiar with that with that phrase. You can turn there yourself. But it it talks about Christ being an example. You know, there's a lot of theology that relegates Jesus to the to the role only of example, of patient, enduring suffering. He's not only an example. He's the the Lamb of God. That doesn't mean he's not an example, and it says so specifically in 1 Peter. And in this regard, when he reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges justly. I come back to that over and over again. Pausing for comments before we go on. Go ahead, Rick. Uh, I just didn't here that I uh, chief priests no, um, Yeah. And they, deny they say he saved others. <laughs> they were familiar with his, they, they were. Yeah. People's capacity to rationalize themselves into being the good guys is incredible. Austin? If Jesus job is to forgive, who actually goes to hell? Well, I was using John Paul Sartre as a bad example. I don't think it's Jesus' job to forgive. Um, Jesus graciously forgives, and people go to hell because they do not seek his forgiveness they don't seek to be united with him Um, and he is the judge of that so that that's who you know the the biblical answer for who who goes to hell is those people who do not bow the knee to the to this lamb of God who offers them forgiveness so yeah when I yeah when I use that phrase about you know Jean-Paul Sartre said oh he'll forgive me that's his job I'm I was using that as a a, as an example of a terrible thing to say and to think, it is not his job. It's any any more than, than um, I don't know why this popped into my mind of all of all examples. I was on the Blue Ridge Parkway one time, and and my car broke down. And I'm, I don't know if you've been on the Blue Ridge. It, well, this is on Skyline Drive in Shenandoah National Park. I don't know if you've been up there. But there's only a couple of places to get on and off and they're miles, you know, they're like, you know, eighty miles apart. And we were right in the middle. I, I can't get to a phone. I'm in a national park. There's not a campground near it. And this family this this couple drove by. They were just up for a afternoon drive and they pulled over and they took us into town and they got a tow truck truck for us and they loaded up the kids and our luggage and took took them to the cabin that we were renting up at Skyland, if any of you, any of you have been in Shenandoah. Was that his job? No. no. He could have driven right by, and, you know, his conscience might have smote him a little bit, but he might have had something important to do or he would, could have said, ah, I'm going to have to leave him for somebody else to help. I've, I've got things to do at home. He stopped, and he just he gave me his whole afternoon and took care of my family it wasn't his job it was just a wonderful kind thing to do and in austin that's that's what i th- the way we, i think we're supposed to be thinking of jesus it's not his job to forgive us but it's this wonderful kind thing that he does because that's who he is that's what he's like just like this this guy from Shining Door, Virginia is how he said Shenandoah. I I live down in Shining Door. I take you down. Oh, he's just a great guy. He didn't have to stop. Jesus doesn't have to forgive, but he does. It's a a marvelous thing. I don't know if that completely answers your question, but I think that's a, yeah, I don't don't know why that particular little instance Incident probably twenty years ago popped into my mind, but it 's a good example I think of that of the kind of way we're supposed to think so that's the scene Jesus is not defending himself he's just suffering and you know it, I, I think there's so much in the scripture about contemplating and meditating upon truth. You can walk through this and just think of all the things that are true and what, what I'm deliberately trying to do with with the pace we're setting with some of the comments is just meditate, think, ponder what Jesus is doing here. He is suffering without any defense, not only death but agony, shame that you know just the just the worst kind of mocking and indignity um it's just, just an awful scene. And he is not putting up any defense. And he just gives himself to this suffering. We've already talked in other passages about he's not, nobody's making him do this. Certainly not Pilate. Um, he's just giving himself to this out of love for his people. And that you know demands that we give some thought and meditation to what love looks like. Is it just does it always looked like being your buddy and enjoying each other's company? No. Love is a re- can be a really hard thing. It's the sacrifice of yourself to what is good for for those you love. And here's Jesus doing that to the farthest extremity. It just deserves to be to, just to be pondered. Um, so we go on, running out of time, but we'll get a little further. And Tom, to answer your question of earlier, no, I will not finish today. I didn't. I, did, I thought there was a chance that I might have a bunch of notes here, but no, I will not get through them. I will finish next week, um, starting at verse 45. Now, there's a a description which I think some of it's chronological and some of it's not. And let's just read through some of the events that go around in the in the larger environment and i'll tell you why i think it's not all chronological verse 45 now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land clearly chronological gives you the times and about the ninth hour jesus cried out with a loud voice saying eli eli lama sabachthani that is my god my god why have you forsaken me Uh, quoting from deep in his heart. I don't think this was just Jesus quoting Scripture. I think it was the cry of his heart, and that's what Scripture's giving us when we read Psalm 22. Um, but it's, a, it's right from Psalm 22, verse 1. Some of those who stood there when they heard that, oh, this man is calling for Elijah. Well, you had people who didn't speak Hebrew. It's the whole history of Jerusalem. We've talked about it in other contexts. There were Greek speakers, there were Hebrew speakers. There was probably even a lot of tension between the Greek and the Hebrew speakers. But not every, all they heard is Eli. It sounded like Elijah. Oh, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. Again, I can't, I can't read that without thinking that it's anything but a mocking t- tone. I don't think people were sitting there expecting Elijah to show up. I think, it was, I think this is mockery. Um, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And there's more about what he cried elsewhere. It is finished. And uh, then behold, the veil of the temple. Now, here's where, I, here's where I think, starting at verse 51, I don't think this is to be understood chronologically. I don't think this all happened right there. And I'll, I'll finish with this. We're just about out of time. But just real quickly, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the earthquake, the rocks were split, the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Um, That little passage there talks about, you know, there's the darkness, there's the death, there's the temple or the veil rent. From top to bottom, there's the earthquake, there's dead people coming out of the grave and going into the city, but that happened after the resurrection. So I think in this little passage, Matthew is writing, sort of summarizing what happened, viewing the the crucifixion and the resurrection all as one great event. And here's some of the things that happened in the context of Jesus dying and rising from the dead. I don't think... It's to be understood that at that necessarily all these things happened at that moment. I do think the, ve- the the veil being rent did, but I think people coming out of the grave didn't, and I think there's a, uh, that kind of uh, explains why it's only mentioned in Matthew because you'd think it's a big enough deal that people, dead people walking around the city. You'd think everybody who recorded Jesus' crucifixion would comment on that, but the other gospel writers do not. I think it's because they don't directly match that event with the moment of Jesus' death. We'll, we'll take that up next week. Uh, any final questions before we go on to worship? Go ahead, Beck. Think about the, the yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not exactly how they <laughs> Yeah. How is oh gosh, what an accident. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, sometimes unbelief strains credulity. <laughs> it really does. All right, there's a lot to some other things I'd like to say about those events. We'll get back to it next week and and finish up the chapter next week. So, thank you all.